It was uh, 10 a.m. two weeks ago this morning, on a Sunday morning, and our family was finally ready to leave for church. We had packed the children into the car, the engine was running, and I was in situ in the driver's seat looking forward to a leisurely drive downtown in the thin Sunday traffic. However, as I swung back the car, the serenity was shattered with a thud, and we instantly halted. And I immediately realized that one of our neighbors had unusually, I stress, parked their car on the opposite side of the street, and I just crashed into it. Well, I must confess at that moment, I wasn't feeling the peace that passes all understanding. (laughs) I jumped out the car and surveyed the damage, a fairly extensive scrape. I had the quandary about whether to wake up the neighbors at 10 o'clock on a Sunday morning. And added to this, of course, we were in a rush to, to get to church by this time. But by the time I returned to the driving seat of the car... And we went on our way. It's fair to say I had lost my sense of equilibrium. Angry at myself, frustrated at the hassle now caused. There was a a black cloud above my head. And my wife uh, notices these things. And (laughs) it was then that the words of comfort and challenge came. Colin, she infamously said, it may seem bad, But it's not the end of the world. Some of you have had that comment given to you as well, perhaps. Well, it's a funny thing. It didn't seem that way. But she was right. Uh, A much greater catastrophe, of course, could have befallen me than merely scraping the car. It's hardly an apocalyptic event, men. It's hardly the end of civilization. And you know, 2,000 years ago, some followers of Jesus had to be reminded of a similar thing. In much different circumstances, they had to be told that it wasn't the end of the world, at least quite yet. See, the disciples had arrived in Jerusalem to a fanfare of expectation. And Jesus, their leader, had been proclaiming remarkable things about the destruction of the temple and the the, the desecration of Jerusalem. And the disciples believed that the curtain call in terms of world history was perhaps at hand. And Jesus says, not quite yet. It's not the end of the world just yet. So let's look at what Jesus said. If you open your Bible, uh, would you, to Luke chapter 21. Luke chapter 21, verses 5 to 38. Scholars reliably inform me that this is one of the most difficult passages in the whole of Scripture to interpret, just for my encouragement. And it's chapter 21 of Luke's Gospel. Why don't we just pray before we read together, shall we? Our Father, we thank you that your word is, in general terms, extraordinarily clear. We thank you for the perspicuity of Scripture. 
And yet, Lord, we know that some other parts are more difficult. And so we pray this morning for clarity and understanding. Keep us from error. Keep me from teaching what is untrue. And guide us by your Holy Spirit in applying what we learn here from Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. So verse 5. Some of his disciples were remarking about how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones and with gifts dedicated to God. But Jesus said, as for what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. Teacher, they asked, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are about to take place? He replied, watch out that you are not deceived, for many will come in my name claiming I am he, and the time is near. Do not follow them. When you hear of wars and revolutions, do not be frightened. These things must happen first, but the end will not come right away. Then he said, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, famines and pestilences in various places and fearful events and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay hands on you and persecute you. They will deliver you to synagogues and prisons and you will be brought before kings and governors and all on account of my name. This will result in your being witnesses to them. But make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you will defend yourselves. For I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. You will be betrayed, even by parents, brothers, relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. All men will hate you because of me, but not a hair of your head will perish. By standing firm, you will gain life. When you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you will know that its desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those in the city get out and let those in the country not enter the city. For this is the time of punishment in fulfillment of all that has been written. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. There will be great distress in the land and wrath against this people. They will fall by the sword and will be taken as prisoners to all the nations. Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. There will be signs in the sun, moon and stars. On the earth nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and tossing of the sea. Men will faint from terror. Apprehensive of what is coming on the world for the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. When these things begin to take place, stand up and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. He told them this parable, look at the fig tree and all the trees. When they sprout leaves, you can see for yourselves and know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you will know that the kingdom of God is near. I tell you the truth, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. 
Be careful or your hearts will be weighed down with dissipation, drunkenness and the anxieties of life. And that day will close in on you unexpectedly like a trap. For it will come upon all those who live on the face of the whole earth. Be always on the watch and pray that you may be able to escape all that is about to happen. And that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. Each day Jesus was teaching at the temple and each evening he went out to spend the night on the hill called the Mount of Olives. And all the people came early in the morning to hear him at the temple. Something I think we easily forget perhaps when reading about the disciples is that the twelve followers of Jesus were Galileans. Uh, That is to say they were not from Jerusalem, they neither hailed from the capital city, uh, nor were they native to it. And instead, they were northerners in the southern land. And when they visited Jerusalem, therefore, they were much like tourists uh, that we so often see around the city of Edinburgh. Uh, We recognize them, don't we? With their digital cameras, uh, their markedly slower pace, and their interest in the surroundings, which we are so familiar with. Well, so too the disciples we find at the beginning of this passage. Here in Luke, we find that upon visiting Jerusalem, they can't help but doing a little bit of sightseeing. And so Luke records that uh, whilst Jesus has been teaching in the temple grounds, there comes a moment, an intervening period, when the disciples have a look around. And we're told uh, in verse 5 that they were remarking to one another about the temple. They were admiring the huge stones of the temple's foundation. They were complimenting the beautiful decorative tributes that had been given from other nations and which overlaid the temple. And they were generally impressed with what was one of the wonders of the ancient world at this time. But just as the disciples are getting into the full tourist swing, uh, just as they're on the lookout for some dodgy tourist gift shop with the items that you buy and you wonder why you bought them when you get home, uh, Jesus stops them in their tracks and he gives them a shocking revelation. He says absolutely something astonishing in verse 6. As for what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. Just suppose that I said to you this morning that Edinburgh Castle, just across the road, with its huge rock foundation, in not too long in the distant future, that it would be destroyed, not one stone upon the other. Implausible? It must have seemed that way. Impossible, perhaps. The Jews regarded the temple as God's dwelling place. And they therefore believed that God would protect his temple at all costs. It was impregnable. It was indestructible. It was unassailable. But Jesus says it will be dismantled brick by brick and stone by stone. And if the disciples are unbelieving about this, they know better than to doubt Jesus, at least verbally. And so they do not ask, will this happen? Which is maybe what they are thinking. But but when will this happen, Jesus? Uh, When will this event occur when the temple is destroyed? 
It seems that reading between the lines in the later section that, that they assumed that such a cataclysmic event would be tied in with the end of the world. For the temple to be destroyed, for Jerusalem to fall, it would take an apocalyptic event, right? But Jesus says no. And he is very clear that the fall of Jerusalem and the temple will not mark the end of the world, but the beginning of the end, if we may put it in those terms. It is, as it were, the the first song in the encore. It, It is not the last song of the evening. Now, I think this is where Jesus is going in this passage. And so, let's, let's trace it more closely together now. And I trust you've still got your Bible open. You certainly need that in this sermon. And we need to notice that Jesus is focusing particularly on the near future. He's focusing especially on the fall of Jerusalem and the temple, something which happened about 37 years after this occasion in A.D. 70. This is opposed to Matthew and Mark. If you're familiar with their accounts of this same story, Matthew and Mark focus predominantly on the coming return of Jesus. And they give us a little bit about the fall of the temple. As we come to Luke's gospel, he has the opposite emphasis. He gives us much about the fall of the temple in Jerusalem and just a little bit about the coming of Jesus at the end of time. And so our job, of course, is to preach and to understand Luke's purpose. So let's unapologetically do that and and spend most of our time on the beginning of the end. Now, Jesus is very clear about this. In verse 9, he says that the end will not come right away. That's what the disciples thought, that with this fall of Jerusalem and the temple, the end would come immediately. But Jesus says, this will not be the occasion for my glorious return. Before this grand finale, a more imminent incident is at hand. Yes, the destruction of the holy city itself. A time up to which and through which the disciples themselves would live. seems to me that that makes sense of all that Jesus now goes on to say. Because Jesus now exhorts the disciples. He tells them how they are to live through this immediate period. And there are four things that he says to them. First of all, he says, do not be deceived in this time by false messiahs. Watch out. This is verse 8. That you are not deceived, for many will come in my name, claiming I am he, and the time is near. Indeed, as early as two decades after Christ's ascension, historians tell us that certain fraudsters were on the scene claiming to be the returning Jesus. And Jesus warns the disciples, whatever clamor surrounds them, whatever crowds flock to them, don't you follow them. Brothers and sisters in Christ, as we bring this into our situation, we also live in a day when there are many people who live and act and play Jesus. They may be religious, they may be non-religious, but through the various mediums of of television shows perhaps, or, or through the message that comes through the books that they write, so often we have de facto messiahs. And there are many people who buy all their books and follow all their methods and chant all their mantras 
looking for physical, emotional, or spiritual salvation. And Jesus says, don't follow people like that. Christians don't read things like that because we've only got one Messiah and he's not returned yet. Do not be deceived. Secondly, he says, do not be frightened. Do not be frightened by tumultuous events. This is in verses 9 to 11. Deceivers may divert you, and that would be a sad thing, but tumultuous events may terrify you. When you hear of wars and revolutions, do not be frightened, says Jesus. Why should they not be frightened? Well, these things must happen first. And what are these things which must happen first? Verse 10. Then he said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There's going to be wars in the world. And there will be great earthquakes, famines and pestilences in various places and fearful events and great signs from heaven. Now I believe here Jesus was speaking, uh, later in the passage it's something different, but here Jesus is speaking of the time through which the disciples would live. And there are all sorts of historical records that you can go to that speak of some of the, the, the warring situations, particularly between the Jewish people and the Romans. Uh, you can read of Vesuvius erupting near Pompeii. You can, you can read in Acts of a great famine across the whole of the Roman Empire. We're not the first generation to have experienced earthquakes and terrorful, uh, terrifying such things. And Jesus is saying to the disciples, precisely because of this, don't be frightened. You're going to live through this period, but don't you shake in your boots because these things must happen first. Friends, God has a timeline. And plotted on that line from Jesus' ascension at the one end to Jesus appearing at the other end are many fearful events to the world which must happen first. And because we know that they must happen before the coming of Jesus Christ, we do not fear these events. You see, the world does. The world does not have this picture of a sovereign God who is ultimately in control of world history. And therefore, as terrorists fly airplanes loaded with people into buildings, the world shakes. It is terrified of nuclear calamity. It is petrified by so-called natural disasters and the next tsunami. The world trembles at these things. But the Christian trusts. We're horrified by these things, sure, but we're, but we're not terrified by them. Every calamity brings us nearer to the coming of Christ, so don't be frightened. Don't be deceived. Thirdly, Jesus says, don't be worried. Don't be worried. Don't be worried by persecution and martyrdom. This was going to be the reality for, for Jesus' disciples. Uh, they will lay hands on you, this is verse 12, and persecute you. Deliver you to the synagogues and prisons and you will be brought before kings and governors and all on account of my name. And in case we think that Jesus is sailing a scare story here, uh, you only need to read all about it in the book of Acts. Uh, Stephen, the first Christian martyr, James, Peter, Paul, Silas, persecuted. And yet what also happened, what Jesus goes on to say, this will result in you being witnesses to them. You see, the persecuted believers became the proclaimers of the gospel. Those persecuted by the world 
became proclaimers to that world. And as they, as they chained them up to Roman soldiers, they told them the gospel. And as they brought them before governors and kings, they got the gospel too. And Christ's name was proclaimed throughout the Roman world by and through persecution. And it's amazing as you read the book of Acts and some of these profound and wonderful sermons. Of course, they were unscripted, the prison sermons. And this was on the instructions of Jesus because he says in verse 14, Make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you will defend yourself. I mean, just imagine sitting in a prison cell and you know that in the morning you're going to have to say something in defense of your life. And you know that death could be the consequence if you say the wrong thing. Now let me ask you, wouldn't you spend a few minutes doing a bit of prep? You know, wouldn't you take a a few notes thinking about how you could maneuver your way out of it? Jesus says, don't do it. Because I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist. Just read it. Just read Stephen's sermons and Paul's sermons. They are incredible as they are carried along by the Holy Spirit. Incidentally, and in case you're wondering, I don't think this means that preachers should not prepare sermons. And uh, quite frankly, that is, in my opinion, a ludicrous comparison to make. Because this is a specific promise for persecuted preachers in the moment of, moment of greatest peril. I mean, as far as I know, uh, no one's going to kill me on the door, depending on what I say. Maybe metaphorically, but probably not literally. And we cannot take a, a promise for an irregular situation on trial for your life and apply it to the regular ins and outs of teaching preparation. What this is, is a comfort That in our culture, as we are increasingly put under pressure, as more and more we are put on the spot, that God will grant us the supply to meet the demand. The supply to meet the demand for the moment. Indeed, God's grace will be sufficient, even if necessary, to the point of death itself. Jesus says, even if betrayed by family, even if hated by all men, even if killed by the executioner, yet not one hair of your head will perish. By standing firm, you will gain life. It reminds us of something else that Jesus said. He said, fear not those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. God holds the keys of death and hell. And God alone grants life to the sinner. And so it's as if Jesus is saying, you may lose your head in a physical sense, but spiritually speaking, it will be as though not one hair of your fair head has been touched. You're eternally secured and protected when persecution comes. So don't be worried. It's Jesus' third exhortation. And then fourthly, Jesus says something else. He says, don't be slow in leaving Jerusalem. Now, verses 20 to 24 are admittedly controversial verses. Uh, In particular, some people see these verses as not relating at all to the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70, but rather only to the event of the coming of Christ at the end of history. Now, I certainly respect those that take that viewpoint, and maybe that is your uh, perspective today. Uh, But I have to say that I 
I take a different view from that. Because for one thing, Jesus speaks in verse 24 of an aftermath period. He speaks of a, of a period beyond the fall of Jerusalem. It would be strange, would this not, for this to relate to the end time here, and then for Jesus to speak of Jewish prisoners being then taken into exile, and uh, the times of the Gentiles ensuing. And so it seems to me that Jesus is speaking here primarily of the first century fall of Jerusalem. What is clear is that our Lord describes its fate in a few terrible brushstrokes. Verse 21, Jerusalem will be surrounded. Uh, Jerusalem will also be distressed, particularly the weak and vulnerable. And verse 24, there will be death by the sword on an unprecedented scale. And as aforementioned, there will be prisoners taken uh, into the nations. And behind this event, and this is a crucial thing, will be the punishment and judgment of God. Notice the two words that are used in, in verse 23, punishment and wrath. The fall of Jerusalem is not some tragic accident. It's not something that God is hands off about. It is God ordained. And it is God's temporal judgment on ethnic Israel who, by and large, have rejected the Messiah. Now, it's true, of course, that some Jews in the early church became Christians. The apostles were Jews. Uh, The apostle Paul was a Jew. There were Jews that did become Christians, but by and large, the Jewish nation rejected Christ. Again, reading the book of Acts, in in its essence, the book of Acts is an explanation of how the Jewish Christian church, to begin with, developed to become a predominantly and almost all Gentile church. As you come to about the middle of Acts, the persecution by the Jews upon the Christians is so strong that they are propelled out of Jerusalem into all the nations and to the ends of the earth. And we still live in this period, the times of the Gentiles, when much more Gentiles are becoming Christians than Jews. God still has plans for the Jews at the end of history. Read Romans 11 if you want some uh, afternoon reading. He still has plans for them, but it is to say that this was God's immediate judgment on this people. And the practical application is clear to the disciples here that if you are in Jerusalem and you see an army coming over the next hill, don't hang around. Don't run into the city. I mean, that would be the obvious thing to do, wouldn't it? If an army started coming over the hill, get within the walls. You know better. Because God has promised Jerusalem will fall. The temple will be destroyed. Flee to the mountains. And if you're out of town, if you're out on a business trip somewhere and you see the army coming, don't run for the city. Stay out. And so Jesus adds this exhortation to preserve the disciples and to protect those who are believers from the judgment that would fall in AD 70. Do not be deceived, do not be frightened, do not be worried, do not be slow. Isn't Jesus so gracious to give this teaching to his disciples? To prepare them for the tumultuous days that will take up the rest of their lives. 
Now, this brings us, secondly, uh, to the end of the world itself. And we do get there in this passage. There is some debates about how quickly we get there. But anyway, uh, as far as I can tell, the focus falls on the end of the world from verse 25. Predominantly, again, uh, one of the things you see with, in Matthew and Mark as well is that the fall of the temple in Jerusalem in some way pictures the, what happens at the end of time. So it's not always clear which is being spoken of. They mirror each other. But I think here in Luke, there's, a, there's quite a clear distinguishing going on. And it, I think from verse 25, it's clear that we're thinking of the final and glorious return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, there's a, a school of thinking uh, that believes, opposite to what we said before, that this all relates to the future. There's a school of thinking that all of this passage relates to the fall of Jerusalem. It's called the, uh, the full preterist view. Uh, but there's an obvious problem with the full preterist view, namely that what Jesus now describes is of such apocalyptic proportions that it surely cannot possibly describe what happened in AD 70. I mean, just read the historians, read Josephus on this. It says nothing about Jesus coming in the clouds with great glory. My understanding of Scripture is that when Jesus finally returns, it will be like the lightning that covers the sky. In other words, it will be unmistakable. Every eye will see him. It's funny if he's come back in AD 70 already and we missed him. The time of Jesus' return is still future. But the time of its occasion, as we look at Scripture, is something of a mystery. And we don't get the precise date anywhere. Beware anybody who tells you of a date. Jesus says, no one knows the day. In fact, we don't even know the hour, Jesus said. What we do know is in some general terms, some some broad signs that will surround this. There will be heavenly signs, verse 25. There will be earthly signs, also verse 25. Storms and tidal waves, it seems. And in response to this, there will be human apprehension. On the earth, nations will be in anguish and perplexity. And Jesus says, it's at that time, verse 27, that they will see the Son of Man coming in the cloud with power and with great glory. And what are the disciples to do in this situation? What should we do if and when some of these things begin to happen? Should we panic? No. Uh, Should we fear? No. Should we be downcast? No. Verse 28 tells us, when these things begin to take place, stand up, don't slouch, and lift up your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. It's rather like the fig tree, says Jesus in verse 29. You know, when the leaves sprout on the fig tree, you can tell that the summer is near. It's a tip-off. You see this in our gardens just now, don't you? Some of the flowers are beginning to spring up. And you know that summer is just around the corner. Well, Jesus says, when you see some of these things begin to happen, you will know that my return is not far off. Lift up your heads. Look to the skies. While while everyone else is trembling, while everyone else is earthbound, you look up and be ready. Now, verse 32, I'd like you to consider this with me. Because suddenly we find here, parachuted in here, this is very unfortunate when you're a preacher, you've just got to deal with verses that appear that are extraordinarily difficult in your text. And you wonder, how did that get there? 
It's the kind of verse that you get as an assistant pastor, you know. It's called uh, delegation. Anyway, Jesus goes on to add a very difficult statement. There's about a thousand interpretations of this verse. But he says this, I tell you the truth, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. And the question here is, who, who is this generation who will not die before all these things happen? Was it the disciples themselves? Some people believe that. If that is the case, Jesus simply got it wrong. He, because he was promising that the disciples would be alive when he returned with power and glory. And they died. They died before that has happened. My estimation, that's a wholly unsatisfactory view given the stunning accuracy of all Jesus' other predictions. And there are some other possible interpretations possible. Uh, Peter told me to just keep this to a minimum, so just, uh, I've got a few minutes, I could give you one or two, all right? So I'll maybe just give you one or two of what I think, or maybe the more likely ones. First of all, it could be that this generation refers not to the disciples back then, but to this generation that will be alive at the coming of Jesus. Okay, in other words, those who see the signs in verse 25, these cataclysmic signs just before the return of Jesus, will also be alive when Jesus actually returns. From the beginning of when they see the signs to when Jesus comes, it's not going to be a long period. The same folks are going to witness both things. Okay, so that's one possible interpretation. It's not without its problems. A second possibility that we are, is that we're making the assumption that the return of Jesus is included when Jesus says all these things. See, we tend to read this passage and we emphasize the word all. And we think the second coming must be included in this. But we miss the more significant words, these things. Now, there's two other places in the passage where these things is mentioned. If you go back uh, to verse 7, looking at the context of the general discussion... Teacher, they asked, when will these things happen? These things. When will they happen? Now, what were these things that they were referring to? It was specifically to the fall of the temple and the destruction of Jerusalem. Interesting that. It refers to that, not to the second coming of Jesus. Again, if you go to uh, verse 9, speaking of the disciples living through the tumultuous times, when you hear of wars and revolutions, do not be frightened. These things must happen first, but the end will not come right away. And therefore, it may be that when Jesus for the third time says these things must happen, it may be that he's now reverting back and summarizing what he said before. And he's saying that you're going to live through the time of the destruction of the temple of Jerusalem, but he's not including the return of Jesus. Well, there's other possibilities. There's other ways you could go with it. And I'm not going to get knotted up in it any more than I am. Uh, Here's the bottom line. Let's get back to the main street. You guys in Edinburgh this week, you don't like diversions, do you? Uh, Any more than me. So let's get back to the main street. And it is this. Jesus is coming again. Someone once said that the main things are the plain things and the plain things are the main things. And here's the one thing that's plain in this passage. Jesus is returning. And I want to say to you today, if you're not a Christian, are you ready for that day? Are you prepared for this reality whenever it comes? 
See, the Bible says that Jesus is coming, and he's coming as two things on that day. He's coming as a savior for those who believe, and he's coming for a ju- as a judge on those who don't. And the Bible teaches that all of us, one and all, have fallen short of God's standards, that we've sinned against a perfect and pure and holy God. And therefore, God is coming to righteously judge the world and say, if you don't want me, then I will give you what you want. Life without me, after you die. I wonder if you're ready for that day. You know, there's only one way that you can be prepared, and that's by putting your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a verse later on in the New Testament, and speaking of the end of time, it says that through faith, we are shielded by God's power for that day. Faith is your only shield and protection when Jesus comes again. Because he died on a cross for our sins and paid the penalty for them. You know, this morning, if you are a Christian, this passage also has relevance to you as well. The return of Jesus isn't just a subject that we wheel out for people who are not Christians. It's a doctrine for believers. And so Jesus, addressing believers, he says two things. First of all, be careful. Be careful uh, of two things. First of all, watch out for worldliness. And secondly, watch out for worry. Worldliness is in verse 34. Be careful that your hearts will be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness. Now, why does he pick on these particular things? Well, the reason in the context is plain. Because drunkenness and dissipation prevent you from being vigilant and watchful for the return of Jesus. Drunkenness is not just a matter of self-control, though it is. It is also a matter of losing our focus and vigilance upon the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Understand that when droves of people are walking around Edinburgh late on on a Friday and Saturday night, I should say staggering around, uh, that they're making a theological statement. They're saying that there's nothing to live for, that there's nothing to look forward to, and that there's nothing to look up to. Dare the Christian get drunk and show by this that they are not aware, they are not vigilant, they are not looking above. Be careful, worldliness will weigh you down and keep you from looking up. As well, a second thing uh, Jesus mentions, which is worry. Jesus adds, be careful, your hearts don't get weighed down with the anxieties of life. See, there's the problem of alcohol, there's also the problem of anxiety. Anxiety keeps you from looking up as well, doesn't it? I mean, what are the things that we worry about? It, It is not the things above, it's earthly things. It's the mortgage and the car. It, it's the job. It's, it's health. It's the family. And naturally, of course, we have concerns about these areas, but if we are consumed by them, it shows that our focus is not on the next world because we're too focused on this world. Too focused on this world. Maybe worry in our lives is symptomatic of a theological problem of a spiritual issue that we're not living with our focus on the return of Christ and that we're not looking above on a daily basis, on an hourly basis, on a minute-by-minute basis. Negatively, we must shun these things. But Jesus also says positively, be watchful and prayerful. Verse 36, so that you may be able to escape when the Son of Man comes 
and so that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. We don't just reject certain things. We also seek something. We're vigilant in prayer. We seek God every day and we ask Him to help us be sharp. Help us be focused and vigilant. Not worldly. And not worriers. Do you know, when Jesus promises something, His word is sure. Uh, He says, doesn't he, toward the end of the passage in verse 33, that heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. The words of Jesus are more sure than the ground beneath your feet this morning. They're more solid than the chair you're sitting on. That's what Jesus is saying. And if you doubt that, then think about this. Historians record that 37 years after Jesus proclaimed these truths, that Roman soldiers surrounded the city of Jerusalem, that they broke into the city, that they killed, Josephus tells us, a million people. He was probably well over-exaggerating, but hundreds of thousands of people. It was a bloodbath. And that moreover, the temple itself was destroyed. Even the prediction of stone by stone, brick by brick. Because, you know, there was gold actually inlaid between the bricks. And so the Roman soldiers, to get at them, they took it apart piece by piece. There was not one stone left on another. What Jesus proclaimed about Jerusalem came true. They were fulfilled. And Jesus' words that remain outstanding shall be fulfilled with the same certainty He will come in the clouds in power and great glory. Will He come as your Savior? Or will He come as your judge? And will you be ready for the day of His appearing? We often say, it's not the end of the world. But one day it's going to be. Ready? Let's pray.